From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. A uh, very special mailbag edition as Father Trujillo wandered into the studio with the giant mailbag over his shoulder. <laughs> he is two inches shorter than he was when he walked in, and we're going to empty that mailbag out today so that it will be uh, not as much of a burden on him. <laughs> and uh, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, as uh, as the announcer man said at the beginning of the program, you can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, or... After 4 p.m. Central Time on any day, you can call our listener comment line, which is the same as our regular studio phone number of 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. But don't call now. Call at 4 o'clock Central Time, uh, which is 5 o'clock Eastern Time. And uh, you can leave that message uh, at that time. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And our host is he is every Monday. Uh, Father John Tregilio, where where are you as we air the program today? Well, I'm still at the seminary, but we're having final exams, so ah, uh, there you have it. Okay. Crack the whip, so you have to terrorize your. Yeah, uh, so I feel like Newman today from the Jerry Seinfeld show with all this mail. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We just we won't make you pick up empties and fill your mail truck with them or anything like that. So chair, yeah. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Seinfeld, we have an email from Jerry, and he says, <laughs> <laughs> "You can't make this stuff up." What does canon law? What does canon law say? Who should be handling the Eucharist during adoration? Okay, during adoration, um, I believe that's not in canon law. That's liturgical rubric, uh, which is in uh, both the Roman Missal and in the um, Roman ritual on adoration of the Blessed Sacrament outside of Mass. Um, the ordinary minister of Holy Communion and the Holy Eucharist is the priest, the deacon, and the bishop. Um, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, like uh, instituted acolyte, like we have here at the seminary, among the seminarians, or some dioceses actually have instituted acolytes uh, among the faithful, or you have uh, designated uh, and delegated uh, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion who help out at the parish, um, they can uh, take the Holy Blessed Sacrament, um, put them back into the tabernacle. Uh, they're, not able, they're not allowed. They're not supposed to. They should not give a blessing with the uh, humeral veil, uh, but they can put the Blessed Sacrament away. It is preferred and is required that if an ordinary minister is present, like a bishop, a priest, or a deacon, then they should be the one who uh, puts the Blessed Sacrament back into the tabernacle or who puts the Blessed Sacrament into the monstrance and places it uh, on the altar. But in places like where you have perpetual adoration, I know sometimes it's just not possible for the priest to be there because if he's the only clergyman and he's got to go out on a sick call, someone's going to need to put a Blessed Sacrament away. You can't just leave it out all day long or overnight if it's not... You don't know people signed up for adoration. So in those particular cases where there is no um, uh, clergyman, no priest, deacon, or, or bishop, then someone who is delegated can put it, put the blessed sacrament away. But that's only, only if 
if the priest is or deacon isn't isn't there. Just out of curiosity, Father, you know there are parishes. We have one here in Des Mo- in Des Moines. How am I doing in Birmingham? Uh, <laughs> that, and I have no idea where I'm at. Um, that uh, that have uh, perpetual uh, parishes that have perpetual adoration and have a separate chapel for perpetual adoration. Many of those places will have a monstrance built into the tabernacle. Yes. And my question would be, how often does that host need to be changed out, if ever? That's an excellent question. We have that here at the seminary. We have a smaller chapel that's actually in the seminary proper, St. Bernard's Chapel. We have a tabernacle. You open one of the outer doors, and then the host is um, contained inside the door, so you can have adoration uh, through the tabernacle, so to speak. Uh, we don't have that in the main chapel. Um, the, because we don't use yeast in the Latin rite, that bread, um, the, the consecrated bread, will last a lot longer than in the Eastern uh, churches. Because they use yeast, uh, it, it, first of all, they don't have adoration like we do in terms of a monstrance. Uh, they consecrate um, the, the the bread that's been um, with the yeast, and it's thicker, so there's just no way they're gonna. They don't have anything like that, but they do have people making um, veneration and adoration because you know Jesus is present in their tabernacle. Well, because we don't have the yeast, that host can be in there for several months uh, before it could possibly uh, go bad, um, unless there's moisture. It probably won't go moldy. Most that would happen is it could be very brittle, and um, you know it'd be very. Whenever you do take it out, it could then just you know fall apart. So we are asked on a regular basis to change at least monthly, just for um, precaution's sake. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Amy writes in: My relative is experiencing gender dysphoria, but wants to remain Catholic. What are some resources that would be helpful to him? Well, first of all, I would um, do you know contact a place like Catholic Medical Association. Uh, they have doctors all around the United States, uh, maybe even in this person's parish, certainly in the diocese. These doctors are on the page with Holy Mother Church and the Magisterium. Also, you have the Bioethical, Bioethical Center in Philadelphia. Uh, they have treated this extensively. Um, you could call the diocese. Um, this is something, though, that there's not a lot of experts in um, an abundance, but certainly ch- check with the CMA, Catholic Medical Association, and the Bioethics Center in Philadelphia first. Uh, do, does Courage handle this sort of thing? I believe they do. Um, it's something, again, because it's not that it's, this has never happened before, but it's just as we becoming more and more uh, notoriety to it. So certainly a courage and encourage, which helps people who are family members of those who are having a same-sex attraction. Uh, certainly uh, Father Bochinsky and that would be of, of some uh, great assistance. But in terms of the actual uh, condition, that's why I you know, recommended those other two places. Is there anything spiritual that they should be engaged in? Certainly having a good spiritual director, a confessor, the sacraments are going to be of enormous help uh, because despite whatever um, problem that they're having with it, with their you know, sexual identity, um, chastity is 
for all of us. And unless one is married, one man, one woman in the sacrament of marriage, sexuality is only reserved to that. So if someone has this dysphoria, whether they have same-sex attraction or they're a heterosexual with a healthy um, sexuality, we're all called to chastity and abstinence. So it's not that someone gets a free pass because they have that condition. And again, those organizations, Courage, is, can be found at CourageRC, RC for Roman Catholic, CourageRC.com. And the National Catholic Bioethics Center can be reached at NBC Center uh, at uh, NBCCenter.com. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, and then you can just Google the Catholic Medical Association. I'm not sure what the URL is there, but that will be the first thing for sure that comes up. Um, again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. David says, how can I help someone who believes in a deistic God to believe in a theistic God? <laughs> well, uh, you're going to have to do some prayer. And uh, certainly, you know, deism, uh, this belief that some of our founding fathers had, not all of them, um, I think the most famous one would be um, Thomas Jefferson. George Washington was a, was um, Anglican Episcopalian. I don't care what people say, you know, these days. But Thomas Jeff Jefferson and some of his friends were deists who believed that God created the world and then just walked off. He was like what they call the great clockmaker. Uh, theistic is that God creates and sustains uh, all of creation. And certainly um, we have monotheism, that there's belief in the one God, um, and that's the great three great Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, polytheism, where you've got many gods, um, you know, it's not based on, on philosophical truth, because we know uh, as the ancient pagans, the Greeks and the Romans, certainly came to the conclusion that there is uh, one supreme being. Uh, unfortunately, their, their cultures did not survive because of moral decadence later on. Um, so theism, where you would want your friend to hopefully um, embrace, using some good natural theology uh, discussions, arguments, uh, debates, there's certainly books on this, it's called natural theology because it's based on what the natural law can tell us. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, but it's brand spanking new, never before heard by human ears. Uh, so be sure to check out the rest of the program with us. New item at EWTN's Religious Catalog, St. Joseph the Worker Novena Bracelet. It's designed uh, in collaboration with Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, who will be known to many of our uh, EWTN listeners. This unique St. Joseph the Worker Novena Bracelet is with handmade glass-faceted rondelle beads of camel, orchid, and goldenrod, which are reminiscent of St. Joseph. 
Nine larger beads represent representing a novena are cornflower blue and are suggestive of the Blessed Virgin Mary. A trinity of handmade glass beads to represent the Holy Trinity and the Holy Father anchor each end of the bracelet next to shiny silver-plated hearts. The bracelet also features a St. Joseph the Worker medal, a, sm- a small St. Benedict crucifix, and a petite Holy Family medal. Each bracelet is seven and a half inches and comes in a gift box with a prayer card to St. Joseph the Worker. This bracelet will make a nice gift for any occasion. And it's an exclusive EWTN design, handmade right here in the United States. It's available now at EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Uh, Again, uh, mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Wes writes in, is it acceptable for lay people to use holy water oils, etc., in their private lives. Well, certainly holy water is always uh, encouraged for private use. Uh, it's not just the public uh, liturgical use that we have in church, uh, whether the priest sprinkles uh, at Mass or, like, for instance, at, um, at funerals, we, we uh, sprinkle holy water on the casket at the funeral Mass. We have the holy water fonts uh, in the church. But the faithful are encouraged to take some holy water home with them so that they can have a little font. Um, my, growing up in my house, my mother had a little little font with a little angel on top of it right by the door. So as we would leave, especially on our way to school, uh, we could bless ourselves. People have little bottles. I know some churches, some Catholic churches, not only provide this all the time, there's a big vat or container of holy water that people can come and get. But even like at Easter time, with the Easter water, uh, that's always a nice um, resource. People can take some of that home with them. Um, oils, that's something you have to be uh, particular about because the holy oils that the bishop uh, blesses at the Chrism Mass during Holy Week are reserved for the sacraments. You have the oil of the sick that's used at anointing. You have the oil of catechumens that we use at baptism. And the Chrism oil that's used at baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. Those can only be used uh, by priests uh, or uh, deacons in the baptism for the sacraments. The other oils, which are sacramentals, um, like some different oils, like there was even an oil of St. Padre Pio, some other uh, oils that are devotional. Yes, you can use those at home, but they are not the same. They are not the equivalent. They are sacramentals. They're not sacraments. And once again, if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, you can call our regular studio line after 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's take a listen to one of those listener comment line calls now. Yes, I have a question. Don from Maryland. Question, may a tax preparer do a tax return, joint return for individuals who are in a, quote, marriage that is recognized by the government, but not by the Catholic Church? In other words, a joint tax return. Okay, uh, well, that, that's that's a good question. Um, if you are in a business like tax preparation or you're a taxi cab driver uh, or any number of, of um, you know, occupations, uh, when you're providing a, a public service as part of your business, 
and you're legally bound to, um, you know, service the the whole public. Uh, you're not giving any, con- uh, you're not uh, giving support. You're not condoning any bad behavior that their people are doing. It's only when you become uh, a material cooperator in evil, and it has to be proximate uh, material cooperator. That is, that they cannot sustain themselves without that um, service. Give you a, a very clear example. You're a taxi cab driver. You should not be driving people to the abortion clinic. If you're an Uber driver you, or a Lyft driver, you should not be driving them to, uh, to that. But if you're not sure where they're going, you just suspect you're not committing any, any sin or, or whatever in doing that. Um, you certainly, I as a priest, cannot uh, give blessings to people who are in an invalid uh, uh, marriage or, or union. And yet, if I was providing a service like running a, a grocery store, I can't deny service to people who need things like they need food, they need uh, sustenance. Um, where someone can draw the line of distinction would be like we've seen earlier, people who run like a flower store, uh, a floor shop, uh, they or a, a bakery can say, I'm not going to provide... Uh, the wedding cake or the flowers for a couple that's getting married, where it's a same sex or, um, you know, as a Catholic, even like an invalid marriage, uh, you can make that um, stand. You're going to probably have to have some legal uh, representation, but morally speaking, you can refuse that. If you provide it, you are not condoning it per se, unless you're providing something, like I said, if you were at the hospital and you're in the operating room where an abortion or sterilization is taking place, you cannot be of, of assistance in that immoral act. But if you're in a hospital that performs abortions and you work in the laundry, you work in the cafeteria, uh, that's so remote that you are not immor- you're not committing any uh, sin or immoral act because it's so far removed. Uh, next up, we have a question from Adam, and I wish the original Adam had asked this question. Are there any physical, tangible ways of fighting the devil? Should I contact a priest? <laughs> yes, uh, it's too bad the original Adam uh, had not asked that question. <laughs> the best thing to rebuke the devil is uh, certainly prayer. and Because Jesus said, you know, prayer and fasting uh, are, are the best methods. And invoking Our Lady, because uh, the devil, uh, although as an angel, is superior to Our Lady in terms of, of nature, supernaturally, because she is the Mother of God. She gave uh, Jesus his human nature, and she is the queen of heaven and earth. She outranks him, and so she's under he's under her uh, jurisdiction, so to speak. So invoking Our Lady, um, saying the Hail Mary, asking for the intercession of St. Joseph, scourge of demons, use of holy water, uh, wearing uh, the St. Benedict medal, all these things are going to be of great assistance, but also um, making good holy hours uh, before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, a life of prayer, doing some mortification, uh, and things, if they start to get even out of control or a little bit worse, then you turn to the, the, the priest of, the, of your parish, and then you may need the assistance of the diocesan exorcist, but only after all the other methods have been used. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. 
My name is Patricia calling from Cincinnati, Ohio, and my question is about creation and why do some in the Catholic Church say that we go by the creation as it states in the Bible with the six days that happened about six, seven thousand years ago? And why do other Catholics say, oh, it's just uh, it's just a metaphor, it's poetry? I, I think they um, we want to believe in the Bible, we should believe all in the Bible, and I'd like Father's input on that. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's that's a question that's very common, and even among the seminarians who come here their first year. Um, when you look at the book of Genesis, there's actually two stories of creation in there. All right, You have the, the, the first story of creation that talks about uh, the, the days. You know, G, or God starts with with nothing, and then uh, let there be light, and light is created. The very last thing of this, on the sixth day of creation is the creation of man, male and female who created them, and then the seventh day he rested. Then you go into the second story of creation, where Adam is created first, then all the animals, and then when you know, uh, Adam finds he's, that's not really uh, satisfactory enough, then God puts him to sleep, and then from his rib forms Eve. And then, of course, then it falls into the the the, the, uh, the story of the fall. So you got two uh, different um, stories of creation within Genesis. So the the six days, which is part of the first story of creation, obviously that's inspired text. That's inspired. Uh, it's it's infallible. It's inerrant. But how do we interpret it? Um, to interpret it literally that it was six calendar days is certainly one option. But also, you could look interpret it figuratively, because nowhere does does it say you must interpret a day as twenty four hours. So even in our common parlance today, we say, "Well, in my day," well, that doesn't mean I'm referring to a twenty four hour period. I'm talking about a, a, a part or extension of time. Um, also, we talk about sunrise and sunset. Well, we we certainly believe today and know for a fact that the sun doesn't spin around the earth, the earth goes around the sun. But today you could still look in the newspaper or look on your iPhone and it'll say sunrise and sunset because that's a figure of speech. Um, the fact that there's a sequence of creation is what we see in the six days of creation, that you start with inanimate matter, rocks and planets and whatever, then you move into a vegetative life, then you go into animal life, and then human human life. So the six days of creation certainly coincide with uh, what we know from science is the progression uh, of life. So whether you want to believe in six days as six calendar days or you want to look at it more figuratively, the church has not said you must interpret it one way or the other. It's just that we must also always interpret faithfully in accordance with what Holy Mother Church has, has told us as we see in the catechism. I do think one thing we're thinking about in that vein, though, is that the sun and the moon were not created on day one, were they? No. Ponder that for a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, we won't be taking your phone calls today. Um, be sure to check out Mother Angelica Live Classics Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Mother's going to be talking about spiritual blindness and the call to holiness. She reflects on how we can overcome our blindness to become holy. 
That's Mother Angelica Live Classics with our very own foundress, Mother Angelica, Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Television and Radio. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio in the house, emptying out the mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future program, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. The, this edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, a mailbag edition, rolls on. Irene writes in, can you explain Our Lady of Fatima to me? Well, uh, Our Lady of Fatima is... Um, one of the apparitions of Our Lady that have taken place in human history. Uh, prior to uh, the First World War, the Blessed Mother appeared to three children in a small town in Portugal, uh, Fatima. And the, the three children uh, were addressed by Mary, and Mary said to them, please encourage people to pray, particularly to pray the rosary, uh, to wear the brown scapular, uh, to make uh, the, the first uh, Saturdays in preparation for and hopefully to avert uh, a, a terrible war. Well, uh, the war was not averted, but there was the miracle of the sun that took place in which after a horrible, I mean, a huge deluge of, of rain took place, the people watched as the sun spun around and when it stopped and went back to where it had been, everybody's uh, cl- clothes were dry. Uh, that's the miracle of the sun. But Our Lady of Fatima also revealed to the children the fact that, you know, people can go to hell for sins of the flesh and for many sins that people today just take casually as either not being sinful or not being uh, a mortal sin. And Our Lady said, no, that's not the f- not the case. We should be praying for the salvation of souls and we should be afraid of hell. You know, that's part of the uh, act of contrition. I dread the, the pains of hell. Uh, but also the conversion of sinners. And Mary asked that if people prayed, um, Russia would be converted and uh, a war would be averted. Well, Russia did not convert. War was not averted. Yet, we certainly believe that you know Mary had some strong influence on the decline and destruction of the Soviet Union. Certainly the help of uh, St. John Paul the Great uh, was, was instrumental as well. But Our Lady's message of Fatima, prayer, fasting, uh, doing penance for souls. And those three children, um, Jacinta and Francisco, who were the younger uh, of the the three, died shortly afterwards as young children. Uh, Lucia, Sister Lucy, went into the Carmelite monastery, uh, became a Carmelite nun. She actually met John Paul, and uh, she died uh, not too long ago. There's the secrets of Fatima, which the word secret, it's not like, um, you know, the CIA and the KGB. It was that uh, Our Lady revealed to the children things that would happen. And the third secret, which was entrusted to the Pope, um, was revealed for the year 2000. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, 
was in charge of, of you know, revealing this. Had nothing to do with when the world was going to end. People thought, oh, it's going to be naming it Antichrist. It was going to tell us when, what day and time the world was going to end. Jesus says in the scriptures, you know, not the day nor the hour. So why would his mother spill the beans if he says that's not going to happen? In actuality, the third secret had to do with um, the fact that the, the Pope would be, an assassination attempt would be taken upon him. And John Paul, you know, Alec Archiga uh, did uh, attempt to kill him. Um, the bullet was uh, averted by just a few millimeters, almost killed him, but he survived. And he was shot on May 13th, the, the feast of, of Our Lady of Fatima. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to leave a listener comment line call for us after 5 p.m. Eastern time, call us at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll take a listen to one of those calls now. My name is Raymond here in Williston, North Dakota. I'm trying to find out the uh, origin of the Bible verse, Call No Man Father. Catholic pastor's father. Just wanted to get some clarification on that. Thank you. Okay, well, that's that's a very common uh, question. We get, and I get, especially when I'm at the airport and they'll see father on my ticket or whatever. Um, yes, it does say, call no man father. But let's look at that. Call no one father. Call no man father. Uh, there's no restriction in that in that passage on who the the no one is. So technically speaking, if we took that literally, it would not only apply to me as a priest, but it would also apply, you couldn't call George Washington the father of our country. You would not be able to fill out any government or employment form where the line would be father, because that father, mother, you wouldn't be able to fill it out. Because if technically speaking, you call no one father, you would not be able to fill out that line. Nobody... No Christian has a problem in putting their dad's name as father. Um, there's no problem in, in using that title. What Jesus is saying here, it's the context, the application, that nobody can replace God the Father. And you had in the, in the custom of Judaism at the time of Christ, you had some rabbis who were given the title and, and uh, office of father that they had their own little groups of following, and so he wanted us to avoid that. But you know, he didn't say call no religious leader father, call no one, no man father. So obviously, if if it can't be broadly uh, applied in that case, that means in specificity, we have to use our common sense as well as the fact that even Saint Paul and other places in the in the New Testament, people refer to themselves like uh, my son. Um, uh, it's a spiritual relationship. Uh, we have uh, St. Peter using that phraseology as well as St. Paul. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number after 5 p.m. Eastern Time or 4 p.m. Central Time, and you can leave us a listener comment line call. Judy writes in, how do we even know that the devil is real? <laughs> Believe me. He is real. You don't have to necessarily see him as he's portrayed in Hollywood or uh, in, in, in art. Uh, the devil is real. The devil is not the absolute antithesis of good 
We don't believe in a dualism where good and evil are equal. Uh, good is always more powerful, is a higher uh, force than evil. Evil, as St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, is a privation, an absence of good that should be there. The devil was created as an angel. Uh, he and one-third of the angels disobeyed God, and they were cast into hell, and Lucifer went from being an angel of the Lord to being uh, the devil. Uh, his role in, in our human life is the tempter. Um, that being said, he can he can affect things except our free will. He cannot make us do anything against our will, but he can certainly obsess us from outside. He can possess someone from inside, but again, he cannot force anyone to commit sin because you need your will in, engaged for there to be sin or not. Um, the devil is in existence. All you have to do is see what's going on in the world today. We don't want to blame everything that's bad on the devil because then it's sort of like, you know, pushing the buck. Um, you know, what happened during World War II, uh, especially the heinous, horrible evil of, of the uh, Holocaust, I would say, yeah, it's diabolical, but I don't want to re release the blame that was, should it be properly a place to Adolf Hitler and those Nazi soldiers who committed those heinous acts of evil. Um, certainly the devil was enjoying himself when things like that took place or when 9-11 happened. That's a diabolical act, and yet human beings did it and not against their will. So there is supernatural evil. There's human moral evil uh, existing at the same time. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, Father. I have this bright idea recently that I wanted to help the kids that go to public school and are sent to catechism. But being as I live in California, there's a lot of problem with what the school children are learning. So anyway, I got this bright idea. I asked uh, my par few parishes if I could come and go to the fourth grade classes with rosaries and get them excited about having a family night once a week with their family, talk over things that they want to talk about. Anyway, and say the rosary once a week, one hour. And my question to you is, if you have any suggestions, because I'm not used to speaking in front of kids, remembering when you were a kid, what would have impressed you if somebody came into your classroom and talked about the rosary and, you know, saying the rosary at home? Okay, well, I think that's a great idea. You know, I'm not as old as I look, so I don't remember Father Peyton actually being on the air uh, with his uh, family rosary hour. The family that prays together stays together. But I do remember hearing about him uh, with my relatives. And certainly that whole premise of getting the family together, not just during Lent, but if we could get families across the country, around the world, to pray a rosary together once a week to begin with, ultimately it would be great if they could do that uh, every day uh, during the week. To get kids um, interested in the, in the rosary, it's important to tell them the history of the rosary, of how St. Dominic used that um, in the 13th century in his battle against Albigensians. They won't understand completely the heresy of Albigensianism, but they can understand St. Dominic. You show them what a rosary looks like. Uh, you show them pictures of, in sacred art of the mysteries of the rosary. Um, certainly, the, the Hail Mary, Glory Be, and Our Father are prayers that they should know anyway. Um, 
So showing them how easy it is, but also how historical it is, and the effect of the rosary, um, you know, like the Battle of Lampanto. Uh, certainly kids are fascinated by, by things like that. So I would share those things to get them uh, interested and excited about this. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today. Ron writes in, which of God's natures died on the cross? <laughs> Very easy. His human nature. Um, one divine person, but two natures, human and divine. Divinity, his divine nature cannot die. It's eternal. His divine nature is a divine intellect and a divine will. His human nature which is a rational intellect and free will, is connected and united with a human body. And it's his human body that died. His human soul did not die because souls are immortal. And yet, just like you and I, when we die, our soul is separated from our body and we wait for the resurrection of the dead at the end of time when Jesus comes back and will do that. So his human nature is what experienced death on Good Friday, not his divine. Again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Not taking your calls today, but if you'd like to give us a ring at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can leave us a listener comment line message. Let's take another listen to another one of those. My name is Martha, and I'm calling from Bernie, Texas. My question is, you know, I've gone to several churches, and they have the, the tabernacle in a, in a separate sacristy, not behind the altar. Could you tell me what caused this change? Yes, I'm glad you asked that, because I did some research about that many years ago when I was in the seminary, and I just taught a course here at the seminary on the doctrines of Vatican II. At the time of the Second Vatican Council, it was suggested that in places where there was a lot of pilgrimages, where you had lots of visitors, for instance, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City gets a ton of visitors. So because of that, having the tabernacle behind the altar where people would typically want to have some silent prayer made it sort of uh, impractical. So they built a beautiful but very well-adorned and spacious chapel behind the main altar at St. Patrick's. The typical parish and even most cathedrals in the United States don't get that many people visiting that you need to do that. Um, when you've got a little church, I had two small parishes um, when I was pastor for 16 years. In both cases, the tabernacle was put in the, in the corner. It was only... 10 feet away from the middle of the church, but there was no reason to move it to the corner because we weren't getting busloads of people coming to, to visit. And in the new, uh, the, the third edition of the Roman Missal, it makes it very clear the tabernacle should be centrally located uh, in a noble place. Um, this movement of going to not just a corner, but going to a, a separate chapel completely Again, the practical aspect was only for those places where the church was getting so much traffic, people could not make uh, visits to the Blessed Sacrament and have prayerful, quiet time. In most cases, that's not the issue. But there was a, a, a document that came out in the United States, Environment and Art, that sort of promoted this idea of having the Blessed Sacrament, the tabernacle, in a separate room, sometimes in a separate building. And as Fulton J. Sheen often said, 
he felt like Mary Magdalene. He would go into a church where they put my Lord. He couldn't find the tabernacle. So the documents, when you look at them today, when you read the Roman Missal as it is today, it makes it clear the tabernacle should be centrally located and the optimum place is smack in the middle because that's where people are going to focus their attention. Kyle writes in, when Jesus ascended to the dead, did he only raise the Jewish people or people of other faiths as well? Ah, okay, well, certainly the Jewish people are the chosen people, and I would believe they'd be the first ones out, but anyone who through no fault of their own, certainly people who are a part of the earth where they were not had any exposure to Judaism, um, you know, going parts of the world where there was no access, we don't know who was waiting for release from the limbo of the dead. Uh, certainly uh, the Jews uh, like Adam and Eve, um, all the way to Abraham, uh, Moses, even good St. Joseph was not able to get into heaven until Jesus died on Good Friday and then uh, on Good Saturday, Holy Saturday went, uh, descended among the dead and released them. But certainly it would make sense that there would be non-Jewish people who live good, virtuous lives uh, would certainly be part of that um, contingency. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, I'm Carol. I'm in Tallahassee, Florida. I was just wondering if a Mass is valid, if you, if the priest doesn't say body of Christ when he gives you the Eucharist, when he gives you the the precious body. If he doesn't say that, is it still valid? Thank you. Bye. Okay. Well, and that brings up a very good point. What is absolutely necessary for a valid Mass? What's necessary is that you have a valley ordained priest who uses wheat bread and grape wine. And he must, at a minimum, say the words, this is my body, this is my blood, at the consecration. And then the bread and wine are changed substantially into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. At communion time, when the priest or the deacon or the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, when they give out communion, are supposed to say the body of Christ. Um, if they don't say it, it's still, it's still Jesus, it's still the real presence, but they're doing something wrong. They should be saying the proper words. Uh, it's just as like if the priest... Um, leaves things out of the Mass, he shouldn't do that. If he adds things, he shouldn't do that. But for validity, he must at least say, this is my body, this is my blood. He must be valley ordained. He must use you know, grape wine and wheat, wheat bread with no um, other additions to it. Um, so yes, if the priest is, does not say to you, the body of Christ, you are still receiving Christ. James would like to know, was it a practice before Vatican II that women had to go to confession after giving birth? It was not required. We had what we call the churching of women, which is still uh, an optional practice, where after giving birth, uh, a woman would come to church, and there were special prayers and blessings, which are in the older Roman ritual. You could find it in the extraordinary form. But women were never required to go to confession after giving birth because it wasn't a sin. Uh, even in the Jewish custom, um, you know, it wasn't that they were sinful. They were ritually impure because of the blood that was shed at giving blood uh, or at giving birth. But 
they were not considered that they had committed any sin because, you know, giving birth is a holy thing. So in the Catholic tradition, we had what we call the churching of women. A new mother would come, have some prayers said, um, and God would give his blessings to them. But going to confession is only required if someone has committed a sin, not because you, you gave birth. And let's take a listen to one more of our listener comment line calls. Hi, my name is Michael. I'm from Springfield, Illinois. I'm calling in regards to the limited engagement of the priest in the pro-life activities that are annual that go on. I see a limited number of priests that are involved in diocese. What, as a layperson, can I do to encourage and promote the, the, them being involved? Okay. Well, I think you've touched on an important point. One, yes, priests should be involved. Uh, certainly um, at a national level, when we have the um, March for Life uh, in January in Washington, D.C., also at the local level, um, you know, I've seen priests, myself included, uh, in front of abortion clinics. But we also want people to know that, you know, this is the purview and duty of the laity to be leaven in the world, salt of the earth, light of the world, that our job as priests is to be of spiritual support, but we don't want people to think, oh, if the priest's not there, uh, it's not holy or it's not Catholic. Um, my job is to encourage, uh, to um, support, but I do not have to be there in order for people to, especially because uh, lay people are in the world. Priests work in the world, but we are not of the world as we're told at our ordination. So the fact that some priests are not there is not a sign that they are, they don't support the movement. Uh, we want, because if it's only clergy and religious who go to these things, then the secular world, the secular media and press are going to say, see, this is just a Catholic church um, movement, as opposed to saying, no, these are Catholic laity who are full-blown citizens of, of this country, they're in the world, they have families, they work in, the, in secular jobs, and it has more powerful witness, and yet you don't want to exclude. So like even when you had the civil rights movement, yes, you had some clergy who were very conspicuous, but the majority of people who were there and should have been there were the, the secular lay people, because then it has more powerful effect. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls today. Steve wants to know, how can I explain to people that I don't worship Mary or pray to statues? Well, here's one way you could do that at Christmas time. Ask people, uh, do you have a nativity set on your front lawn or in your house? If they're not Catholic and they do, you could say, ah, oh, idolatry. Well, they of course, it's not. Um, nativity sets are no different than having a statue in your house. It's just a reminder. Uh, it's encouraging us to think about these people, but also the statues are like pictures of our loved ones. Um, you know, if we took things too literally, it says no graven images. So we had the whole heresy of iconoclasm, which people thought any image at all was forbidden. We don't believe in that. Um, remember when Jesus talked about the coin? And they, he said, whose image is on there? Caesar. He didn't say, oh, it's sinful for you to have the coin or look at the coin. He goes, no, give the Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So the image, the statue, in and of itself is benign. It's neutral. It's 
if I worship, now, I as a Catholic, I don't worship Mary or the saints, but I honor them because the first commandment, you should adore and uh, worship God alone. The fourth commandment, honor thy father and mother. Honor is subservient, it's inferior to worship, which is only God, but honor is reverence. It's, you know, uh, giving respect. So if I have to honor my mother and father, all the more I should honor uh, the mother Jesus. Victor wants to know why Catholics focus more on Jesus than the Father or the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, I don't think we, we focus more. It's that Jesus is the one who established the church. He gives us his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. But because we believe in the Trinity, and this is Catholic dogma, it's in the Catechism, uh, there's three persons but one God. So what the Father does, the Son does, the Holy Spirit does. So even though we use terminology, all right, we call it uh, by um, appropriation, we say that Jesus saved the world, God the Father created it, God the Holy Spirit sanctified it, you can't separate the persons of the Trinity. We make distinctions, but we can't separate. So when I'm receiving the body of Christ, I'm also receiving the God the Father and God the Spirit when I'm receiving God the Son, because that's how the Trinity works. When Jesus died on the cross, the Father and the Holy Spirit were not on vacation. They were not somewhere else. The three persons are always operative. It's just that our puny brains, our minds to wrap around this mystery, have to ascribe certain things uh, of the divine persons. And very quickly here at the end of the program, George says, it is said that Catholics follow scripture and tradition. Is there a book that has all the traditions listed? Uh... Yeah, the catechism. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best you're going to do, George, is the catechism of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, and our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Wednesday, Father Mitch talking ancient languages, church teaching, and the like. Dominican Father Brian Milady on Thursday and our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, will wrap up the week on Friday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.